All right. Uh, my name is Sean, by the way, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church, and we're talking about fear. We've been talking about fear for the last two weeks and talking about it this week. Also, uh, this will be the last week that we talk about fear. Uh, we talk about this, by the way, uh, the fear series that we do every October, and we've only started, I've, I've started like five incomplete sentences so far in a row. Like that ADD kicking in, I think of something else to say, and I just bail on, that sentence was stupid anyway. Let me, and I just now did it again. Wow, I'm still doing it. I need to stop that. Holy cow, now I'm stuck in my head about it. Um, you have no idea what it's like to be in my brain. If you've got really bad ADD, it's absolutely horrible. Um, any, holy cow, wow. My name is Sean Sears, I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church, and we're wrapping up a series on fear this weekend, and it's the one thing that, uh, not, there's more than, and dang it, I'm still starting other sentences, um, but fear is the one thing all of us have in common. Now, there's probably other things that we have in common, too. But if you're like a little kid or like an old man, you have fears. Just what you're afraid of is different. When you're a little kid, you're afraid of uh, getting lost, you know, at the mall. Or, or uh, if you're a teenager, you're hoping to get lost at the mall, ditch your parents. Um, but, but like when, you, when, you, when you're like a, a seventh grader or sixth grader and you go to middle school for the first time, uh, you're afraid of, of getting lost because this is the first time that you're switching classes. Because uh, last year in fifth grade, you're in the same class all the time. Now you're in middle school, and like, what if I can't find my class? What if I get embarrassed? Um, another, another big deal, when you're like a ninth grader, uh, what if I don't make the team uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a freshman in college? Uh, what if I can't pay off all of this debt that I'm starting to sign papers on? Um, what if I'm marrying the wrong person? So you guys are like, what if I have to stay married to the person I married? Uh, what if... What if we can't have kids? What if something happens during the pregnancy? Uh, what if the kids get hurt? Uh, what if I lose my kid in the mall, right? Uh, and then, and then, what if, what if my, like my, my wife? Uh, she's, um, I probably get in trouble if I told you how old she was, but. Uh, but, but she's up there with me. Well, actually, she stopped aging a while ago. I just kept going. And if you've seen our pictures over the last 15 years, that actually looks true. That chick doesn't age. Um, but in, in any case, um, uh, she went, she's in Florida right now. So she, she's not here this weekend because her dad had back surgery. He's 78 years old. So back surgery when you're 50 is one thing. Back surgery when you're 78 is completely different. And so she went down there to help her mom when he came home, came home because actually... He hasn't been able to come home yet because he's 78. They said he'd come home on Thursday, but he hasn't been able to yet. So I'm, I'm just saying. And so now my, my mother-in-law is like 73, uh, and like she's got a whole different set of fears than what I do as a 51-year-old whose kids have just left the house in the last few years, than what you have who's maybe just gotten out of college and you started your first like real grown-up job, or, or you who's a, a 10th grader in high school. All of us have fears. It's just the fears that we have are a little bit different. Um, and I, I think the danger is that we start making decisions based on our fears. Uh, scripture says whatever is not of faith is sin. Uh, and it's, it's the fear that's going to cause you to make really horrible decisions. Uh, wh whether you're religious or not, fear makes will motivate you to make horrible decisions. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. In, in fact, 365 different times in the Bible, it says not to be afraid. Um, that's, what it, that's what it says. And if there's been one uh, like principle behind each weekend's teaching, including this weekend, it's this, uh, that the, the fear of the Lord we said in the first week was, was different than our fear of everything else because that fear is a, a respect. It's the more you understand who God is, 
uh, the sovereignty of God, God how, how nothing is beyond uh, God's control. doesn't mean that God makes everything happen, uh, but it does mean that God can make everything that does happen work out for his glory and your good. And the more confident you are in that, the more you fear the Lord, the less you will have uh, fear of anything else. Uh, that's been like the, the, the guiding principle behind the teaching. And the first week we talked, by the way, there's a million different things that we're afraid of. So it's really difficult for us to narrow it down to just three. Uh, and the first week we talked about our fear of what other people think, because I think that that's a consistent fear uh, from, from childhood all the way up until an adult. And those of you, we said this two weeks ago, that you don't care what anybody else thinks. You guys are just jerks anyway, right? But most healthy people uh, do at least care how they are perceived by other people. That's part of just being a normal, self-aware adult. Last week, we talked about the fear of failure, how the fear of failure is going to hold you back. And this weekend, with the story that we're looking at, uh, it covers a whole lot of different fears. There's uh, four main characters in the story that we're looking at today out of the Bible. Uh, one of them is afraid of, of insignificance. Another one is afraid of um, uh, not being respected. Another one is afraid of rejection. Another one is afraid of death. Uh, another one is the, uh, afraid of, of uh, being left out. Uh, another one is afraid of standing out. And uh, there's also the other fear of confrontation. All of those different fears uh, are, are addressed. Uh, we said that we'd summarize it by, by saying that this is probably the fear of, of loss. Uh, but then as I was teaching through it um, this past week on Thursday, which we record for the online service, uh, which got put online last night, and then preached it last night for the first time in the Saturday night service, which is at 5 o'clock, by the way, um, I got done with it and I said, I, I don't know, I, I think this is more like the fear of, of doing the right thing if the right thing brings bad things to me. Have you ever like had to, like you knew something, you knew you needed, you knew somebody needed to do this but you were just hoping it wasn't going to have to be you that did it? Do you guys, can you come up with your own illustration of that in your head? Like you knew that there was something that you should do, but you didn't want to do it because you were afraid of how it would turn out. Can I phrase it that way? Do I pick up more of you on that one? You knew that you needed to do something, but you were afraid to do that because if I do that, uh, things might not work out well for me. Uh, if you're in high school, uh, there's that smelly kid that sits by themselves in high school. And, and like everybody knows who that's like, right? Like everybody knows, we all know that there's that one kid that everybody kind of makes fun of. Nobody necessarily bullies them. They just don't want to be seen hanging. And that guy sits by himself every single day at, at school at lunch. And you're a follower of Jesus maybe. And, and you walk by the guy and you're like, like somebody should be nice to that person and like show them that they have value and love. But you're afraid to go sit down by them because if you sit down with them, then everybody else is going to start calling you stinky like you're afraid of, right? And then, by the way, if you don't know the person in your school that everybody knows is stinky, it's probably because you're a stinky person, right? Like every school has that kid. And, and I don't know if you have that compassion bent in your heart. Uh, but if you, if you, and, but that person, by the way, ends up getting a job. So everybody knows somebody that we work with who's the same way. And it, they might not physically stink, but they just, I don't know, just, they just, they just, they just have a hard time making friends. And like, you've wondered what it would be like to be them. And you're thankful that you're not, right? Because of how, like you imagine they might feel about being themselves. And you're thinking, I wish somebody would be nice to them. I just hope it's not me. 
Uh, is, that, is that a horrible thing to say? Is that, that's an honest thing to say, though, right? Uh, that's just one easy, easy, easy picking uh, example of, of having to do the right thing, but not wanting to do the right thing because it might not work out well. There's a much, much more severe example of that in the teaching today. If you've got your Bible, why don't you go to Esther? It's in the Old Testament. Esther, Queen Esther, uh, she's really famous. Um, Esther chapter 1. Now, we're going to tell the story of Esther. Uh, and how many of you guys have ever been to a live play? Raise your hand if you've been to a live play. Okay, so you're probably familiar with the idea that a play has several different scenes, right? Uh, you might recognize this because the curtains close, they change the backdrop, and then the curtains open again, and then everything looks different. That's scene two. And then the curtains close, and you can hear all the people moving stuff in the background, then the curtains open again, and that's scene three or act three. So I'm going to tell the story of Esther in, in six scenes in six acts, all right? So uh, act one or, or scene number one is in Esther chapter one, verse one, where it says this. Uh, the events that are being recorded here, by the way, at the end of the book, it says that uh, uh, one of the four main characters is the one who wrote down all of these things. Uh, these events happened in the days of King Xerxes. So King Xerxes is the first of the four main characters in the story of Esther. Uh, by the way, you can Wikipedia this, and his reign began in 486 BC. Uh, that's, and, and he was the king of Persia. And it went from like India all the way into North Africa. At the time uh, that he lived, this might have been, at least as, I think as far as we know, uh, this was the largest kingdom in history at this point in time. Uh, so these events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa, which was his capital city uh, in, in Persia. In the third year of his reign, so this is 483 BC when this happens, uh, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. He invited all of the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. So there's 127 provinces, that, and all of them have nobles, and all of them have princes. And he invites all of the nobles, all of the princes, and all of the military officers from his vast army all over his 127 different provinces. So how many people's at this party? Like, I have no idea. It's like in, like, there's, this is a... This might have been the absolute largest party in history up until this point in history also. It's just gigantic. And, and this is where I stopped reading, but you can. Re there's 10 chapters in Esther. It'd take you 30 minutes probably to read the entire book of Esther. We're not going to take the time to do that. So we're going to skip a lot of it, and I'm just going to hit the highlights uh, for, for you this morning. Um, but you find out in the next few verses that this party is 180 days long. Woo! Right? You, you wish you'd been invited to that thing, right? Especially if you're on the payroll, which the princes and the nobles and the military officers would have been on the payroll of the government. So they're getting paid. I'm wondering if they were like getting overtime also, right? Because I got to be here the whole time. It's 24-7, right? So there's more than 40 hours that I'm here. You know, so they're probably milking it. 180 days they have this party in the capital city. Oh, that's six months, man. Almost six months. Like six months of parties. That's, 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 that's crazy. At the end of the six months of parties for all the provinces uh, here in the capital city of Susa, he throws an additional seven-day party for all the workers who threw the party for everybody else. 
right? So that's the last seven days. He says, all right, all you prophet, all, all of you princes, nobles, and military leaders, uh, let's serve everybody in the city who served us for the past six months for the next seven days. At the end of the seven days, they are lit out of their minds, like, like, every, like slurring their speeches, I don't, whatever. Anyway, King Xerxes, uh, what he does is he says, um, he says somebody, oh, by the way, so that at the end of the party, they separated the guys and the girls, uh, the, 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 the guys and then the, their wives. And uh, the king's wife, the queen, her name was Vashti. Queen Vashti uh, gets to throw a special party on the last day just for the women. And on the last day, Xerxes throws a special party just for the guys. And at the end of the special party for just the guys, at the end of the seven days, at the end of the 180 days of nothing but parties, he sends his servants, somebody go get Queen Vashti, because I know how I want to end my side of the party. And I want her to come in and I want her to show all of her beauty to all of these men. Hello. Um, and I'll let you figure out what he meant by that. So naturally, she says, what do, what do, what do you think she said? <laughs> she says, I'm sorry, you should have put that drink down a long time ago. I ain't that kind of girl. I ain't that kind of girl. So she says, no. Uh, well, he's already made a really big deal out of this to all of these guys that he's trying to make happy. He's a moron. Um, a hedonist, and he's just, he just wants to be known as the party king. And, uh, and he's told everybody already, he's already let it out of the bag, uh, what he's making his wife do. And now he's publicly embarrassed because she said no, and now he's wishing I hadn't have told everybody that that's what I told her to do, because now I just, I've lost face. And then they all say to him, well, now we're all screwed, because all of our wives just heard her tell you no, and she got away with it. So now all of our wives are going to tell us no. Uh, so you need to do something about this, king. And so he wrote a decree that said that women can't tell their husbands no anymore in all of the land of the, of the Medes and Persians. And uh, just so you know, fellas, we don't live in that country, okay? <laughs> just saying. This ain't Persia. It don't work like that no more. <laughs> Uh, and then he banishes Queen Vashti. That's what he does. He banishes her. He removes her as queen, and, and he banishes her, and she's never allowed into his presence ever again. He doesn't kill her, so thankfully uh, she, her, her life is spared, uh, but that's not because he's a, he's a nice guy. He's a horrible, he's a horrible human being. Uh, and, then, and then he says, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to have a beauty pageant. And I want you 127 princes, uh, nobles, and military leaders to go back to your provinces and send me the hottest girls from your province, and we'll have a beauty pageant for me. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, he's a, he's, a great, he's a great guy. He's the guy you definitely want dating your daughter. That's not the guy you want dating your daughter at all. Um, and uh, so they go back, and everybody sends him, and his harem goes from whatever it was, and it explodes overnight. And all of these women are trained for an entire year on how to take care of themselves and please the king, uh, the, the Bible says. And then they get, they get one night to try out for the job. Uh, it's, it's a, hey, this is a book in the Bible. And uh, it's the most awkward opening, I think, of any book in the whole Bible. Really, really awkward is, is what it is. Um, 
And uh, there's, and then right when that when that letter goes out that everybody needs to send uh, the the prettiest girls from their province, um, we're introduced to the second character in the story of Esther, and that's this guy named Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish man who has a very simple job in Susa, in the capital city. And his humble job is he's the gatekeeper for the palace. It's his job is to check the credentials of everybody walking in, make sure they're not armed, and then he opens up the door and they get to enter into the palace. That's his job. Uh, he's a Jewish guy. Now, we don't know what, cat, what province he's from. The Bible doesn't say. But um, his, his, his parents are dead. He's an older man. His, his dad had a younger brother, and his, his uncle uh, had a daughter. And his uncle and his wife, his aunt, uh, they both die. And so uh, his young cousin becomes an orphan. And because he's got a good and stable job, he becomes her ward. And he essentially fosters her. Uh, so he's responsible for his young cousin. So it's his first cousin, and she's a lot younger than him. Some of you guys may have a, a much older cousin right, or a much younger cousin. If your parents had died, you're close to that cousin, and maybe they would have allowed you to live with them, possibly. So, so Mordecai, if he's married, then Mordecai and his wife then are taking care of their young cousin. And that's when we're introduced to the third character in the story, and her name is Esther. And Esther's chosen from her province. So Mordecai, like, he coaches her, and he comes in and he, and he talks to her before she's sent into the harem. And he gives her Two instructions. The first instruction is this. Don't tell anybody you're related to me. I want you to keep that a secret. I think it'll go better for you if nobody knows that we're related. And the second thing is, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. I think it'll go better for you if nobody knows that you're Jewish. So those are the two things that he tells her. And that's where we pick up the story in Esther chapter 2, uh, verse 10. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. So don't tell anybody your family relation to me or your, or your heritage or our, or our family background that we're Jewish. Don't tell anybody this. Every day, Mordecai would t take a walk near the courtyard of the harem uh, to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. So every day on his, his break, he would walk over by the court where the harem was allowed outside. And, you know, he's standing by a bush pretending like he can't hear her. And, you know, she's standing by the bush pretending like she can't see him. And he's like, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Well, what's going on with you? Do you need anything? Right? Like, are you okay? Are, is, are, you, being, are you being taken care of? And he's just being a good, a good cousin. And he's looking out for his little cousin is all he's doing. In verse 16, we find uh, that Esther gets her chance to please the king. And he, he picks her to be the queen. And that's in Esther chapter 2. Um, he says that King Xerxes loved her more than any of the other young women. And he was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. End scene. All right. Now we cut. The curtains open up again. And the background is completely different. Now the scene is, is uh, Mordecai is at the gate of the palace uh, on, on duty. And while he's at the gate, uh, it says in Esther chapter 2, verse 21, one day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, so uh, they, they had like a higher position. He was at the door of the palace. They were at the door of his private chambers. So I don't know, like they're, they're in the same doorkeeper union probably, right? It's like the predecessor to Teamsters, right? So like they're in the, the doorkeeper's union. So uh, he's at the gate and they're at the private office, uh, Big Thana and Teresh. 
They became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. Now, this is an important scene because it comes up later on in, in Act 5. So that's why this scene has to be included in the story. Now, there's an investigation done by the king's officers, and they find out that Big Thana and Teresh really were trying to assassinate the king. They're found guilty of treason, and they're put to death by being impaled on stakes in the middle of the capital city of, of, uh, of uh, Susa. And that is the end of Act 2. And so the curtains close, and then the curtains open again. Uh, and when the curtains open again for scene three, it's a completely different setting. Now, in this setting, uh, we're in the king's throne room, and King Xerxes is in there, and he's got 127 uh, princes who are over the 127 provinces. And what he does is he picks one of those guys to be in charge of all of the other ones. So he elevates one of the princes to be the king's the king's right hand, right? So the king's right hand, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, oh, that's like in the show uh, that I'm not recommending where somebody's called the hand of the king, right? So it's like, they're like, they're like that's like the guy's right hand. Like he's, he's, he's the man among men. He's second in command to, uh, uh, to, to the king. Oh, crud, I forgot to tell you, at the end of Act, act 2, so open up those curtains again real quick. Those guys are impaled on the stakes, right? Like they're, that, they're big thana and trash are impaled on the stakes. And then the story that Mordecai was the one who uncovered that plot was written in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. That's the name of the book. The book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. That is a very important detail because it's that book and that story that's in the book that comes up in Acts, excuse me, in Act 5. So, so now, in, now, close it, fast forward the video again. Now we're back up to, to the, where we were, where we left off before we had to go to the bathroom and we paused the movie, right? So that's where we're at now. And uh, he's, been, he's been promoted. Um, and his name, uh, is, and his name is, is Haman. So this is the fourth of four characters, the last guy that we're introducing uh, into the story, Haman. Haman is one of the princes from one of the provinces, and he's been elevated to be over all of the other ones. And the king even says that anywhere that Haman goes, everybody has to bow down to him whenever he comes by because he is the represent, he's the king's right hand is what he is. Uh, and everybody bows down for, king, for Haman everywhere he goes except for one dude. There is one dude who will not bow down to him. Guess who it was? Mordecai. Mordecai would not bow down to that joker. And the Bible doesn't say why he will not bow down to, Morde to, to Haman, but he will not do it. And Haman can't be happy that 99.9999999% of all of Persia bows down to him because he's upset that 0.0000000001% won't bow down to him. Like he can't, he can't be happy if anybody ain't giving him respect. And some of us, we struggle with that too, and, right? And I'm not going to front you out. But like we can't be, like if there's one person that doesn't like us, like we're just, we're, we obsess over that one person and they, they wreck us. If, if we can't, right? Like if that one person disrespects us, then, then we got to, man, we fly into a rage. And that's what Haman did. There's one guy who won't respect him. The Bible doesn't tell us why that uh, Mordecai won't bow down to Haman. But Haman obsesses 
over Mordecai. He's obsessed. All he is is a gatekeeper, bro. Like he's not in the military. He's not a prince. He's not a noble. He's a humble gatekeeper. The only thing he won't do is kiss your butt, right? So like, but he's obsessed. So here's what he does. And this is in act three, Esther chapter three, verse eight and nine. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and he said, there's a certain race of people. Oh, now you got to make this about a whole race, right? That's what he does. There's a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. And they did have different dietary laws. If you have, if you have Jewish friends, I have Jewish friends, and they have a different set of, right, uh, uh, not beliefs, but observances. The more orthodox your Jewish friends are, the more different their diet is going to be. There's things that they can't eat on Friday that they can't eat on other days. And they don't eat shellfish, which means that they don't eat shrimp. They'll eat fish. They don't eat lobster. Now, we've got Jewish friends that eat all of these things, uh, but the more conservative of our Jewish friends won't do this. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't eat pork uh, either. Um, and there's, you know, Muslims don't eat pork either, but I'm just saying, like they, Christians, apparently we eat everything, uh, right? We eat everything. Um, but, but um, so they had, they had different, they had different set of standards. They had the law though. They had the Ten Commandments. They didn't sleep around. They didn't sleep around. They didn't commit adultery. They didn't divorce their wives. They, they raised their kids to go to temple. They didn't worship all of the pagan gods of the Persians and the Medians. So yeah, they lived a little bit different. They, they did it. So that was a true statement. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. All right, that's an exaggeration. It's not that they just refused it. They, they were good citizens. I mean, that's part of the laws, to obey the laws of the land, right? Uh, Jesus, the New Testament even talks about that, that we're, to, uh, that we're to respect the authorities over us, that we're to pray for our government leaders. So that's, 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 that's one of the values of, of Scripture. So it's not like they disobeyed the laws of the king. I mean, the one law that one guy is disobeying is that he isn't bowing down every time you ride your horse through the gate. That's the only law anybody's actually breaking. Verse 9 says, uh, or the end of verse 8 says that they refuse to obey the laws of the king, so it's not in the king's interest to let them live. Holy cow, you just like went to DEFCON 5 because this guy won't kiss your butt. You're going to like wipe out and like this is genocide. Like you're going to kill all Jewish people everywhere because one Jewish dude won't bow down at the gate every time you ride your horse past him. Verse 9, if it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed. I don't know if the king's going to do this. So he sweetens the pot and he says, and if you do, I will give you 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. Hey, Okay, so how big are these tens, excuse me, these 10,000 large sacks of silver? That's not like a coin purse. Is that like a lunch sack? Like a lunch sack, 10,000 lunch sacks full of silver? How much money is that worth? I don't know. That's, that's a lot though, right? Like what if it's like a grocery sack? A grocery sack? Like, like a stop and shop grocery sack full of silver? That's awesome. What if it's like one of those military, like, a, like the hockey bags? I know military guys don't call them hockey bags, but you know what I'm talking about? Like I'm, obviously I wasn't in the military. Is that a rucksack? What's that? Is that what that is? It's a, oh, just a duffel bag. Okay. That, that was easy. <laughs> just buy those at Dick's Sporting Goods, right? But like, what if it's like a, you know, one of those big duffel bags, but when I say, you say duffel bag, and I'm thinking like the little thing you put over your shoulder and take it to the, well, not that you, hey, you take it to the gym, but I'm thinking, right? Like, that's what I was thinking. 
So somebody else had a commentary that came up to me after the service last night. And this is, I uh, forget how many, how many tons. I, I think they said 230,000 uh, uh, tons is, is what this is. So I, 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 uh, I, 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 I actually did the math. And silver right now is trading at $19.88 an ounce. And based on what this commentary said, uh, what, what, what uh, Haman does is he says, uh, if, you, if you sign this law that we can kill all the Jews... I'll give you $230,150,000 is what he does. And so the king says, let me think about that. Okay. <laughs> when do you want to do this? And so Haman reaches into his pocket and pulls out a dice, and he, and he, he spins the dice uh, to pick which, which, calendar, which month of the year. And then he spins it and, and then picks a, a date. And he keeps doing that until he arrives on. By the way, this is April 17th of that year. And it lands on uh, March 7th of the following year. And the dice that he uses uh, to pick the date is called, in Hebrew, uh, Purim. Is this ringing any bells with anybody? Uh, Purim? Anybody know? Everybody, anybody hear of the Jewish celebration of Purim? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Uh, the, the next celebration for Purim uh, for the Jews is March 22nd, or excuse me, March 16th, 2022. So next year, March 16th, is, is Purim. Uh, and Purim comes from the name of the dice that Haman uh, dreidel. You guys know what I'm talking about? He, spin that, he spun that. So, uh, right? That, so he, he, he throws the, the, the die, and it lands on March 7th of the next year. And so this law goes out to everybody in all 27 provinces. So um, then, then here's what happens, verse 12. So on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors of the respective provinces, the notables, uh, the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Well, Mordecai finds out that all Jews are going to be killed 11 months from now, and, and homeboy freaks out, loses his mind, uh, like you would if you found out that everybody who shares your same heritage is going to be killed just because they share your heritage, right? Now, I'm sure there's a piece of Mordecai where he feels personally responsible, right? Like, holy cow, like, this is a little overkill, right? Uh, like, I, I'm sorry I didn't bow down every time you walk by. It doesn't mean you need kill everybody for it, but he's powerless to do anything about it. So what he does is he goes to Esther and he says, Esther, like you, you have to talk. Like you got to go to the king. And she said, well, he's already signed this into law and the law of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. Even the king himself can't undo a law. Once he puts his ring on it, it's like, that's a thing. The law of the Medes and Persians. That's that actual phrase means like when somebody would say, it's like the law of the Medes and Persians. It's a rule that cannot be undone now. And she says, I, I, can't, I can't help you. And he says, you've got to. And Esther responds in Esther chapter 4, uh, verse 11. And then I'm going to read 13 to 16. Here's what it says. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out the golden scepter. And the king hasn't called me into his private chambers in 30 days. Like it's been 30 days since I was invited into the throne room, into his office. Anybody who just walks into his office gets killed. That's also in the law of the Medes and Persians. Like, I can't just like walk in and he hasn't, and it's not like we have like a regular, like once a week, I'm allowed into his office to discuss politics with him. I'm not invited to those meetings. I, I can't do anything about it. Verse 13, Mordecai sent his reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you're going to escape when all of the Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, then deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. 
but you and your family will die. Who knows if perhaps you weren't made queen for just a time, for just such a time as this. Who's to say that this isn't the whole point of you becoming queen? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, all right? Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. And she's not being dramatic because for real, according to the law, she should die if she does this. And that's the end of scene three. Scene four opens up on the third day of this fast. Esther, chapter five, verse one through four. On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and she entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's private chambers. Holy cow. Now, everybody who's in the king's throne room, in his office, is there because they've been invited, and they know who else has been invited. It's like this door isn't going to open because anybody who opens up this door once we're in session gets killed. And so while they're in this meeting, the door opens. Do you think everybody kept talking yes or no? Room gets deathly silent because whoever just opened up that door is about to die. And everybody in the throne room looks back, and in walks Queen Esther. And everybody in that room does what? <gasps> Holy crap. Now, I, I want to see her face. I want to know, like, is she walking, like, solemnly, right? Like, resolved that she's going to die, but she's going to die with dignity. Her chin is up, and she's walking like this right? Like, I, I want to know. Or is she, like, walking humbly and, and meek and timid? Like, I'd, like, if she's wearing high heels, the only sound in that office right now is click, 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 right? And then, like, she's like, dang it, I, sh I should have worn my flats. <laughs> so maybe halfway across the office, she kicks off her shoes so that, so that it doesn't sound so awkward. She gets all the way up there to the king, and here's what happens. Uh, when he saw the king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance, like, this is like a, like a super tense moment, right? Uh, verse, verse 3 says, or verse 2 says, when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, uh, he impaled her on a stick. And that's the end of the book. I'm just kidding. That's not it. Uh, when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the golden scepter to her, and everybody in the room went, <sighs> right? Everybody, everybody sighed. Uh, so Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Then the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I'll give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Woo! She must have been super hot. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> right? Like, holy cow, how pretty was this girl? What do you want? You can have anything you want up to half of all of Persia. <laughs> uh, other dudes are like, yeah, yeah, she's worth that. I, I admit it. I admit it. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's worth that. I, I'd give her that too if I, if I could, Right? Half, up to half the kingdom. And Esther replied, if it please the king. Now, by the way, uh, who also is in this meeting? Haman, the king's right hand. He, he's in there too because he's helping the king govern all 127 provinces. So here's a request. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared for the king. That's her only, she can have up to half the kingdom and all she wants is for the king and Haman to come to dinner that her and her maids have been spending the last three days preparing for her. Well, that's an easy yes. So the king invites Haman to Esther's banquet and asks what she wants at the banquet. So now they're at the banquet, and he says, so what did you really want? 
right? Obviously, he's thinking she didn't want to tell me in front of everybody. So now that's me and Haman here and a few other people or whatever. Uh, what do you really want? And she says, well, what I really want is for just you and Haman to come to dinner tomorrow night. So apparently, there were more people invited to this banquet than what she was hoping for. So she says, what I really want is for just you two to come to dinner tomorrow night. Uh, and so the king says, absolutely, we will. So that night, Haman is flying high. Like his whole world is falling into place. Like everything is going according to plan. Uh, he's the king's right hand. Whatever the queen has on her heart, she apparently can't get it taken care of without the king and his counsel. Like his whole life was going perfect. So he goes home and he tells his wife, everything's going great. And the wife says, this is awesome. You need to show up tomorrow morning now that you're in. Like you are in. Tomorrow morning, before the king opens up his office, you need to get down there and tell him that you want to kill Mordecai. Like, don't even let Mordecai make it to March 7th. Like, let's kill him tomorrow. Like, you can, like, you're in, bro. Like, the queen can't even make a decision without you too. Like, it's her husband and you. Like, you can ask anything you want and the king's gonna give it to you. So tomorrow morning, you need to ask, you need to ask the king if you can kill Mordecai. And he says to his wife, that's brilliant. So he tells his servants, go put a stake in my backyard, 75 foot tall for us to impale, impale. They, they, were, they were obsessed with impaling people on sticks. So he said, uh, put up a 75 foot pole uh, and for us to impale Mordecai on so everybody in Susa can see his rotting body in the sun. Well, that's what the conversation he's having when he goes home that night after the banquet. Uh, but, but the king goes to sleep and he can't fall asleep. He goes to bed, but he can't fall asleep. So the king has his servants come in and read him a bedtime story. And what book do you think they read from? The book of the history of King Artaxerxes' reign. So they're reading it, and he's listening, and they get to the part about Mordecai discovering the plot uh, from Big Thana and, and Teresh, and the king stops the guys who are reading the story and said, wait a minute, by the way, uh, did we ever give that guy a reward? No, king. He said, so what was done for him? Nothing was done for him. He said, well, that's, that's a problem. And by now it's almost dawn, and he hears somebody in the outer courtyards. And that's where we pick up the story in Esther chapter 6. Uh, who is that in the outer court, the king inquired. This is the next morning, early the next morning. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai in the pole that he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, uh, it's Haman, he's out in the court, is what they said. Uh, bring, bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman says to himself, Haman says, uh, Haman thought to himself, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? So like king's being cool about this. And he's like, hey, what do you think I should do for somebody I'm happy with? Well, who could he be more happy with than me? So I'm going to tell him everything I want him to do for me. And I'm going to pretend like I didn't know it was for me. So here's what he says. So he replied, well, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes. You know, the one that has your monogram on it, right? That one. That's, you, that's what the, you should do. And you should put it on him, uh, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden. One of the horses that has a royal emblem on its head, like it's the king's horse. That's what he should, you should do. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to, the one, uh, to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. And have that official shout everywhere they goes, this is what the king does for someone that he wishes to honor. That's what they should do. Okay, bro, you've been thinking about this way too long. 
You came up with that answer way too fast, right? Uh, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Verse 10, excellent, the king said to Haman, quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman is like, oh, crap. Now he's got to walk through the whole city of Susa pulling Mordecai the Jew, his mortal enemy, up on the horse, wearing the robe he wanted to wear, riding the horse he wanted to ride. And he's the one who has to tell everybody, everybody, kiss this man's butt. That's what he basically has to say to every, everybody. It's his ultimate humiliation. Um, that afternoon, he goes back and he tells his wife about what happened. And she goes, oh, this is horrible. He's like, I know, I was there, right? So uh, she says, this guy's untouchable now. Like, you can't, you can't touch Mordecai. Like, this is all going to blow back on you. Like, like, this is all screwed up. So then they go to dinner. That's the end of scene four. Scene five opens up. That night is the Queen Esther's private banquet. At the end of the meal, Xerxes says, all right, it's just me and Haman. What do you really want? Esther says, there is somebody in your kingdom who is trying to kill me and all of my people. Now remember, nobody knows she's Jewish. Nobody knows she's related to Mordecai. And so the king is like, what? And Haman is like, what? <laughs> Xerxes is like, what should we do to this man? I got an idea, Haman says. Right? <laughs> Homeboy, best be wearing diapers. <laughs> Esther chapter 7, verse 5. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And he just went. <laughs> His whole life, man, holy cow. Last night, riding high. Like, my life couldn't be any better. This morning, he's got to kiss the butt of the most hated man in his entire life, Mordecai, and tell everybody to do the same. And now he's in this meeting where the queen just said that he was their mortal enemy and adversary. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden because he's got to think for a second because this is his right hand. So he just stands up and he's like, Ugh! like he's like, I, like, I don't know what to do. Like, what am I, what do, I, I want to kill him. I, like, I don't like... Like, just all kinds of confused thoughts are just running through King Xerxes' head, and he's out in the palace garden trying to think what he's, how he's going to respond. So while he's out there, the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, verse 8 says, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was arriving, so he just lays on the couch on her body. Like queen, like, like on her legs, right? He's not like laying on her, hey. It's not like that. Like she's on the couch and he like just falls at her feet, you know, grabbing around her ankle. Please spare my life. Please spare my life. And the king walks back in. Uh, and the king exclaimed, oh, sorry, Queen Esther was reclining just as the, excuse me, verse eight, in despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. And the king exclaimed, will you also assault the queen right here in the palace before my eyes? He's like, crap. Like just it all looks bad. Now it looks like he's attacking the queen. And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants just put a bag over his head, signaling his doom. Homeboy knew it was over. And like, they just, they just, they arrest him and they throw a bag over his head. And that's the last time he sees anything ever again. And that like, this, this might be the single worst day anybody's ever had in the history of worst days. 
Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman was set up, has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his backyard, and he intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up to impale Mordecai, and the king's anger was subsided. Dang, this should be a movie. That was really good. What are they going to do, though? Because on March 7th, all the Jews are going to get killed. And they can't change the law of the Medes and Persians. So they call it Mordecai. Because now she's like, I'm, I'm Jewish. Oh, and by the way, your gatekeeper, that's my cousin. Like, he raised me. And so the king says, well, bring him in. Let's figure this out. And so Mordecai comes up with the idea. He says, listen, we can't change the law. But let's add like a P.S. P.S., anybody that picks on a Jew on March 7th, the Jew gets to fight back and kill. Let's just say that they can fight back. And the king says, that's brilliant. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. And that is the end of scene five. And the rescue of the Jews from Haman's plot to destroy him by the Persians became the beginning for what the Jews still celebrate as the celebration of Purim, which is named after the die that, that Haman spun to kill them on March 7th of that, of that year. And that's when they also got to defeat their enemies. Scene six is very short. It's in chapter 10. There's five verses in chapter 10. I'm going to read just the first three. Esther 10, one through three. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout his empire, even to the distant coastlands. His great achievements and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister, so he took Haman's spot as the right hand of the king. Uh, with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was, very, he was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all of their descendants. And that's the end of the story of Esther. The girl who is terrified to do the right thing because if I do the right thing, then bad things will happen to me. I've got three observations from the story of Esther, and I've got one point to make from each one of the four characters, and then we're going to wrap it up. My first of the three observations is this. This is the only book in the entire Bible that God isn't mentioned. Who did not know that? Raise your hand. That there's a book in the Bible where God isn't even mentioned. It's this one. It's Esther. And that was done on purpose. It's a literary device. They intentionally, Mordecai intentionally did not mention God's name. Why? Because the Jews had thought that God had, what? Forgotten about them. So he intentionally doesn't mention God's name because there are times in our life where we can't see God anywhere. And the first observation is this. Just because God is silent does not mean God is absent. Just because you can't see God right now does not mean that God can't see you. And just because you can't feel him at work in your life does not mean that he is not at work in your life. That's what some of you needed to get today from the book of Esther. Second observation is that the two heroes of the story, Mordecai and Esther, were given their position by God on purpose. There's nothing about you that is an accident. 
Everything about you is given to you by God, and you have enough right now to do what God wants you to do right now. Some of you guys are waiting. Well, if I could, if I'd make more, then I'd be more generous. If I could rise higher, then I would use my influence. There's a biblical principle here that if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. What you need to do is you need to find a way to use what you have right now to get done what God's called you to do and quit waiting. And some of you came today for that. You're waiting to do something that's right, and you can't wait anymore. You just need to do it. And for some of you, it's to reconcile a broken relationship. It's to forgive somebody who's hurt you. It's to ask forgiveness from somebody you've hurt. It's to reconcile. Like you're waiting, and I don't know what you're waiting for. You shouldn't wait anymore. I don't know who needed to hear that, but I'm just assuming somebody does because it's in the notes. (laughs) Third observation is that God might be writing a bigger story than the page your story is on. Um, God is writing a bigger story than the page your story is on. Uh, It's always right to do the right thing, even if something bad might happen to you because of it. The second thought to that is that God doesn't waste a plot twist. You might be in a part of your story where there's a plot twist. There's a decree went out that everything in your life is going to fall apart, and you didn't see this coming, and you're not prepared for it. The good news is that even though you weren't prepared for it, God is. God already knows how what you're going through right now is going to work out, and God in heaven is not freaking out, so you don't need to either. You and I get freaked out and scared because we don't see how this is going to end. Well, the only reason we're freaking out right now is because we don't know how it's going to end. God does. God up in heaven is not freaking out, going, angels, quick, get busy. Sean just lost his job. How are we going to figure this out? Sean just found out he's got cancer. Sean's wife just left him. None of those things have happened. I'm just using those as examples. Like, think of something extreme happening in your life that's causing you to freak out. What you need to know is that God already saw this happen and has worked it into the story of your life. You're only scared because you don't know how it's going to end up. But your confidence doesn't come from your ability to manipulate your circumstances. Your confidence comes in the God who controls the outcome of those circumstances. Right? Does God love you? Yes or no. Does God work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Yes or no. Then chill the stink out. God's got this. The one observation from King Xerxes is that he was a man without personal boundaries. He was a hedonist. And he thought that that was a sign of his power and wealth, and it was. It was also a sign of his immaturity because a wise person knows where to set the boundaries for themselves, and they're comfortable telling themselves no to urges and impulses that they get from time to time. Wise people can tell themselves no. There's some stuff that you might be involved in right now that you know for a fact are out of bounds. Bro, get your butt back in line. You are out of bounds. Now, if you know what I'm talking about, then that's the Holy Spirit telling you because I have no idea where you're out of bounds. You're the only one who knows where you're out of bounds and God who just brought that to your head. Get back in bounds. Haman was obsessed with one thing, his own success, and he thought his path to success was paved with his ability to control the people around him. And some of you guys are the exact same way. You think that your road to success is paved with your ability to manipulate and control the people around you. You are your own functional savior because God isn't any longer. Others' lack of respect is seen by you as a personal threat, and so you hate them now. 
Mordecai. Mordecai did not see his lack of authority as an excuse to be passive. Some of us, we, we've seen a problem and we're praying for God to fix the problem and we're just saying it's not my job to fix the problem because I don't have any control in that area. You've seen the area and just because you lack control or authority does not mean that you lack responsibility. If you've seen it, you're now responsible for it, right? If you see injustice, your job is to fix injustice even if you're not the person in charge. He made consistent decisions to do right which gave him the moral authority to persuade other people to do right. So in the meantime, you keep doing the right thing and you'll get the opportunity to influence others to do the right thing also. And the last one is Esther. She overcame her fear with a greater commitment to her convictions. You being solidly in support of your convictions to do right is what will get you over the fear of doing what's right. You've got to be called to a greater yes, I think, to say no to the thing that you're afraid of. Um, all of us are afraid of something. And every yes is a no to something else, and you need to choose the right thing to say no to. Every difficult choice comes with a cost. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. What do, what do, you think, we, what do we think that he meant when he said you have to take up your cross? I can't think of a circumstance where it's easy to do the right thing. Doing the right thing is always the most difficult thing. If it was the, right, if it was the easiest thing, then everybody would do the right thing all the time, but we don't. We do the easy thing all the time. The right thing is most often the hardest thing. And we've got to be comfortable with sacrifice in order to do the right thing. There is a sacrifice that you're going to have to make to stay married to the person you said I do to. And your confidence in saying yes continually, daily, saying yes to the person that you said I do to, even when you don't feel it anymore, is going to come from your conviction that this is the, whether this is the one God wanted you to marry or not, now that you married her, she is the right person for you. Are you with me? You have to have a stronger conviction than your fear in order to do the right thing when you're afraid to do the right thing. To give, the same thing. My wife and I are generous towards God. We're obedient in giving God 10%. And we give generously on top of that. And to say yes to that comes from a greater conviction that it's better for me to lay up treasures in heaven where, moth, moth, where rust and moth do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. Right? It's based on the conviction that no act of generosity will ever go unrepaid by God. It comes from the conviction that I can never outgive God. And the truth is, if I were to take that, it's 17%, but you don't know what that is because you don't know what I make. But that's what my, my wife and I want to get to 20. We're not there yet. I know people in our church who give 30% to God. I want to get there someday, right? Like I would, I would love to be that kind of generous towards God. Now, if I was taking that and putting it into my, RO, my, my, uh, my, my Roth or, or to my, my 401, right? If, if, I was, if I was, I'd have a whole lot more money to retire on. So I'm saying no to a greater retirement because I'm saying yes to a greater investment. I'm just saying every yes to the right thing comes at a cost of something else that I was afraid of losing. Some of you guys, honestly, you need to redraw biblically sexual boundaries in your relationship. And if you do, the person you're dating right now might break up with you. But you'll be willing to pay that price if you have a greater conviction to do right than your fear of being alone. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if you have a greater conviction for what is right, you'll be able to get past the fear that's keeping you doing what's wrong. Uh, to defend someone against a bully, to forgive somebody who hurt you as a child, or to make regular, like, 
Everything that we're called to do that's right comes at a price. Um, Some of you can't see God anywhere in your life right now, but he's there. Keep doing right and see where the road ends. You are where you are for a reason. Look for the reason. Remember that God is writing a bigger story than just your own. And while you are the main character in your story, you are also a supporting character in the story that God is trying to write in the lives of other people around you. Play your part well, even if it costs you something. Be like Esther and say that I'm going to do what's right, and if I die, I die. And truthfully, that was the exact same decision Jesus had to make in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night that he was betrayed by Judas and arrested and then tortured all night long and then crucified on a cross the next day, Jesus was praying very transparently to God the Father. And he said, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was actually asking God, please let me not go through this. And then Jesus said, but not my will be done, yours be done. And he stood up and he went back to the garden, woke the guys up, was arrested and went through all of that because he had a greater conviction than his fear. That's what you need. In order for you to get past your fear of loss or your fear, whatever might happen, that might not happen also, that's keeping you from doing what's right, you've got to have the courage of Esther and say, I'm going to do what's right and if I die, I die. But I will die having done right by God. That's how I'm going to die. You just need a greater conviction. Quit being so soft. Let's pray. God, let your will be done in our marriages. Let your will be done in our relationships with our parents, our siblings, our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our roommates. God, let your will be done in every area of our life. Let us be generous people who love and, and, and forgive and serve generously. God, help us to be willing to lay out, let down our lives for something greater than our stinking selves. God, give us a greater purpose, something to lay our lives down for. Put a dream in our heart that brings you glory and others good. And let us run full speed at that. Dear God, in the name of Jesus, do not let us waste our lives anymore. We only get one shot. Help us to make it count. God, help us to trust you enough to obey you in every area of our life. This is the prayer that we make. And we make this in the name of Jesus and we all say together, amen.